Hi, and welcome to this episode of our Hierarchies of Development podcast. My name is Ingrid, and I'm a lecturer in international development at King's College, London. And I'm Basil, joining you from the European Association of Development Research and Training Institutes. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to two researchers about a pressing development issue. Together, we explore different hierarchies of development. As the title suggests, we focus on how inequalities are organized in enduring ways. This means that we engage with discussions on political economy and power. And our aim is to make this podcast accessible to everyone, so we really hope that some of your listeners will come from outside academia. Let's get started. Welcome to this third episode of our Hierarchies of Development podcast. In the previous two episodes, we talked about environmental and labor hierarchies. Today, we have curated a special episode on production and value chains. But before delving into that, we'd like to take a second, as usual, to thank our colleague Jonas Barhoff at ERD for helping us on the technical side of things and the editing of this podcast. So to talk about issues around production and global value chains today, we have two exciting guests on the show. One of our guests is Intan Suwandi from Illinois State University in the US. Intan, we know you're quite busy with teaching at the moment, so we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Welcome. Thank you. Intan, you are a sociologist based at the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Illinois State University, and your PhD was also in sociology from Oregon University. You're currently doing research in the area of international political economy, global sociology, and Marxist theories of imperialism. You're the author of the book Value Chains, the New Economic Imperialism, for which you were awarded the Paul Sweezy Marxist Sociology Book Award. So congratulations on that. And no doubt we will be talking to you about some of these topics today, among other things. Thank you. And it's nice to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Our second guest is Pamela Mondliwa, who is Special Advisor on Economic Policy to the Minister of Finance in Pretoria, South Africa. Pamela, you're also Associate Researcher at the Center for Competition, Regulation and Economic Development at the University of Johannesburg. And last year, you released this exciting co-edited open access book, uh, Structural Transformations in South Africa with Oxford University Press. Pamela, you've worked across consulting, academia and policy and have extensive research experience in the area of structural transformation in the South African context, regulation and competition enforcement, as well as value chains. You're currently busy taking up a new professional position. So thank you very much for being here today with us and welcome on the podcast. Thank you for having me and uh, greetings to everyone. As usual, we'd like to start this episode with a very broad and general question, in this case about value chains and development. So maybe a good entry point into this discussion, especially for the listeners that don't have any background in economics or political economy, would be to try to define global value chains. Yes, and our question to you is then, how would you explain global value chains to someone who has no prior knowledge of the concept? Why are value chains so important and how do they relate to economic development at large? Pamela, would you like to start? Sure. I mean, the concept of value chain describes the full range of activities that firms and workers perform to bring a product from its conception to end use. This includes uh, activities such as research and development, design, production, 
marketing, distribution, and support to the final consumer um, once the product has been purchased. This is the kind of definition that was uh, put forward by Gary Jureffi, who is the pioneer on research on value chains. And why this is interesting and, and very useful for people to understand, particularly if they're trying to understand development, is because this is where production is organized effectively. And in many instances, what we have is that a lot of these value chains are governed by global players, what we commonly refer to as global value chains, where the production of any particular item is not completely manufactured in one country, but different aspects of that product would come from various countries. And these production systems are then coordinated by what is called lead firms. My particular interest in value chains has really been about understanding power dynamics in value chains. And the power dynamics are important because it is what determines the opportunities for value creation, as well as determine the, the, the patterns of value capture. Why is this important for uh, economic development? This is because in terms of conventional understanding of opportunities for developing uh, uh, countries and economies in particular uh, to develop, it has been understood that all that is necessary is that you partake in global value chains and through that process, you will automatically be able to upgrade your ability to produce products at competitive levels. And this was a common understanding for a long time, but the research around uh, power dynamics and value chains has really unpacked what it actually takes and the difficulties that developing economies often encounter in that process and the strategies that can then be adopted if developing countries are to develop and upgrade and to be able to produce more complex and more uh, uh, higher value products, obviously, over time. Thank you, Pamela, for this detailed entry into the matter. Inten, would you like to add anything regarding perhaps the definition of value chains or their importance or how they relate to economic development? So, yeah, I think Pamela has explained this really, really well. I think I just want to add uh, several things in relation to what I'm doing uh, in my studies. So value chains, when you talk about global value chains, you know, each chain consists of various nodes, usually what they call nodes. And each node signifies a specific production process. For example, you know, the acquisition or organization of raw materials or semi-finished products, the provisioning of labor, transportation, distribution, consumption. And as Pamela uh, has said, it's very complex. And in the neoliberal understanding, or sorry, neoclassical understanding of uh, global value chains, the emphasis is usually on value added, right, at each node of production. What I want to emphasize, and I think Pamela also has said, is that how actually what's happening is um, how value is captured instead of added. The critical perspective of global value chains usually emphasizes on this idea of challenging the claim that uh, global value chains is such a dispersed network. And because of that, power is also dispersed. But I think um, a lot of critical studies have shown that that's not uh, the case in a lot of and what's, what's happening is that uh, lead firms have, and they are multinational, giant multinationals, uh, they usually have a lot of power 
within um, the chains. Uh, thank you so much for this really helpful introduction. So you both hinted at how you approach global value chains in your own work as well, including how you see power in different ways. So we're going to get into that in more detail in the podcast in a little while. But before we go into your research, we wanted to ask some opening questions about how you got to where you are. So let me start with you, Intan. You're a sociologist by training, as we mentioned before, but a lot of your work focuses on political economy and global value chains from a Marxist perspective. So it would be interesting to know what led you to focus on this stream of research, both in terms of your topic and your theoretical approach. Yes, I guess this is a long story. Maybe I should mention a little bit uh, how it began. I, I'm from Indonesia. So when we were kids or even, you know, middle schoolers, uh, we were always thought that, you know, Indonesia is a developing country or it belongs to the third world. And I always wondered what, what does that mean, right? And more importantly, why is it that countries like Indonesia is considered developing or even poor and how did it start? And of course, I didn't get answers. And my own personal interest in Marxism, uh, Marxist theories, led me to um, explore, you know, explanations about global inequalities. And uh, long story short, finally, uh, when I got the right mentor, I was able to have that opportunity to approach, you know, my questions with the appropriate theoretical frameworks. And throughout my education, um, I couldn't find a satisfactory approach or answer to, to my questions about global inequality. And after reading a lot of um, Marxist theories and theories on imperialism, I realized that that's, that makes most sense. And it gives you a really powerful tool to understand these questions. Thanks, Intan. I think it's always good to hear people's personal stories and how they sort of come to develop their own academic interests. So thank you for that. And over to you, Pamela. So your research, Pamela, on structural transformation in South Africa, which contributes both to advancing theory and empirical understandings, is, as we will uh, see today, highly critical of mainstream economic policy and theory. So I wonder if you could say something about what led you to this avenue of research and especially this critical perspective. I mean, sure. I, I started my career at the Competition Authority in South Africa, so at the Competition Commission. And the focus of the work of the authorities on the effects of market power on the economy. And an aspect of this is, of course, about abuse of dominance. And these cases often involve the extraction of higher than normal profits from downstream customers. In the literature, this will be described as exploitation or the exclusion of existing or potential downstream customers in some level of the value chain that you're talking about. So in doing a lot of these cases, what we found was that the tools that have emerged from theory on competition law were very restrictive and didn't really allow us to take the full picture into effect. And I mean, I think you must take into account that South Africa, while democratic South Africa, is still a relatively young country. And when we uh, became a democracy, which was in 1994, this was at the height of the uh, Washington consensus. So a lot of our policies are heavily influenced 
by the kind of dominant policy paradigms that were popularized by what is commonly now known as the Washington Consensus. Or, you know, I think Anton was referring to it as neoliberalism. So as we were, you know, investigating these cases and thereafter maybe trying to write about these cases, we would find instances where there was clearly misconduct happening, which was undermining the ability of entrants to be able to come in and, and, and grow, to be able to be more dynamic. But applying the standard tools of competition theory, it was difficult to be able to prosecute them. And so um, as I'll, I'll touch on again later on, then I became really interested in trying to understand why is it that we look at competition from this perspective? Are there alternatives? So I really wanted to understand these further, which was underscored by move to academia after that. I went to the Center for Competition Regulation and Economic Development at the University of Johannesburg and worked with uh, Professor Simon Roberts and many others where we started tackling these questions. Uh, so the same questions that we would have done at the Competition Authority, but now with a wider perspective on the economy. And the more we dug, the work evolved and it has landed, I think, now with quite a bit focus around value chains and the organization of production, not specifically just looking at it through the lens of value chains, but also production ecosystems. Thank you, Pamela. These are very interesting stories for our listeners to understand how and why one may end up studying value chains. So now what we will do is move towards questions slightly more focused on your research as such, and we'll start with a broad question and then narrow down to issues of power and then policy. Intern, I would like to start with a question for you on global value chains. So the debate around the role of global value chains, sometimes also called global commodity chains, is a complicated debate, as you stress in your research. You also explain that there is a lot of confusion going on, both from supporters and critics of global commodity chains, partly because the debate around the question of economic imperialism and whether it's still a valid concept is still open. For example, you mention in your research David Harvey, who's a very famous uh, Marxist geographer, and he argues that economic imperialism in the form of draining wealth from the global south to the global north has actually reversed over the past 30 to 40 years. And you, on the other hand, uh, don't agree with this position and you want to bring back this notion of imperialism at the very core of your analysis of global production. So could you explain to our listeners why this debate around imperialism still matters to understand value chains today? Yes, yeah, sure. Thank you for the question. When I started to study this topic, that was when the debates about imperialism started to spark again, especially among the, the Western leftists. So that was a, a very interesting moment as well. But due to this fact that there's a lot of emerging economies, um, you know, including China and sometimes, you know, the, the group BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and South Africa, people started to argue that the again this is similar with what the mainstream you know global commodity chains uh, global value chain scholars argue that because the workings or the organization of the world economy and global production has become so complex we should not see things as as it was anymore 
in terms of, uh, well, imperialism is an old story because there are new powers coming in and the organization is so complex. So there's a lot of opportunities for, you know, Global South countries to upgrade, right? That's the word that they use and so on. So some scholars, even on the left, have argued that you know imperialism is such an old concept and that the, the way uh, global commodity chains can no longer be understood as a product of imperialism. But imperialism that we are talking about here is uh, capitalist imperialism. And it is difficult uh, to ignore the imperialist characteristics of the world economy, especially if we understand what capitalist imperialism looks like. So Harry Macduff and a lot of his works, including his book, Imperialism, explains this clearly. So unlike previous forms of imperialism, for example, the one that was in classical antiquity, Capitalist imperialism is not about expansion into other geographical areas. Um, it's not about exaction of tribute. But what's specific about capitalist imperialism is that the dominated areas, which is the global south, are transformed, this is in the word of Macduff, are transformed, adapted, and manipulated to serve the imperatives of capital accumulation at the center. So if we have this understanding we can absolutely see that this is what is exactly happening in the organization and workings of the global commodity chains. You know, the firm level transformations of production sites in the global South countries are often what I call parachuted and with no real organic relation to or logic stemming from this country's economies. They are instead easily dismantled and removed. We can see this from arm's length contracting, right? This is where multinationals just give orders to independent suppliers and through flexible production. And this is where countries are opening their door to investments, which main purpose is just to increase profits for these investors but with no goal or no intention to install real development in these global South countries. Uh, thank you so much, Intan. I find that these debates about imperialism are often neglected, despite their relevance for understanding global hierarchies. So you're doing really important work in putting them back on the agenda. So we'll come back to some of these aspects soon. But I wanted uh, to bring us now to another point of contention within this big debate about global value chains. So on the one side, there's this role of imperialism in shaping these chains, as we see in your work in Tan. But there's also another point of contention, which is the role of power and competition in shaping the possibilities for moving up the global value chains from a domestic perspective. And to what extent mainstream economic theory can capture these processes. So you've contributed specifically to the latter, Pamela, for example, with your paper, Competition, Productive Capabilities and Structural Transformation in South Africa which was published in a recent special issue specifically on bringing production back into development, which was edited by Hajun Cheng and Antonio Andreoni. So in this paper, you lay out some key elements that neoclassical economics, even the most recent extensions of it, completely failed to capture. And you argue that what you call an optimal competition framework can help us understand productive investment and the development of capabilities in South Africa better. 
So there's a lot of interesting material in this paper. And I found it particularly interesting that you, on the one hand, debunk neoclassical approaches to competition. But then on the other hand, you show that competition law in South Africa is itself largely drawn from neoclassical assumptions. So can you say a little bit about what South Africa's competition law entails? And based on your findings in that paper, what would you say are the consequences of South Africa's competition law for production and structural transformation in South Africa? I mean, I think South Africa's competition law is actually largely based on uh, developed countries in the West. But I think something uh, people that follow competition will hear a lot of the time is how uh, forward South Africa has been because unlike many other countries, it has included in its law provisions that relate particularly to inclusion. And this has, I mean, I hear this everywhere I go is it, it's, you know, why are you complaining about these things when the world over South Africa is recognized for having such a, a progressive law? But South Africa's law up to about 2018, it was recently changed. So I'm going to talk about uh, the law from 98, which is when it came into effect. So from 98 to 2018 and 2018 going forward. So in that first period between 1998 and 2018, as I say, the law was still very much largely based on neoclassical economics. So at the heart of it, the things that matter was around the main objective of the act. Uh, when you look at the preamble, it talks about how the act was meant to facilitate inclusion into you know, economic activity because of South Africa's past how the act was meant to dismantle monopoly power that had been created by apartheid laws. So that's there and, and you know, it's always been there right from the beginning. And that's the understanding that has been placed on what the South African competition law is supposed to be. But when you boil down and look at the provisions of the act, in that first period, the abuse of dominance provisions were almost copy and paste the type of laws that you would see in the West. Maybe a little bit more Europe than America, because we still pursue excessive pricing, etc. And we had been uh, pursuing it for a long time. But when you look at the standards, the welfare standards that are applied, the welfare standard was still very much a consumer-focused welfare standard. Now, why is this you know, problematic, given that, of course, competition law should be worried about what consumers pay in the end? The issue there is that particularly in a, an economy like South Africa, where there was a lot of exclusion and you're thinking about how to create an environment where it is possible for entrants to not only come in, but to expand and grow and to see dynamic competition between, you know, existing players and new players. You need to worry about what is in what way does the law support dynamic uh, rivalry? And these are the kind of standards that you saw in classical economics, where there was very much a focus on how to achieve long-run economic growth. So the phrasing that you'd see in theories from more classical economics would be things like, how do you understand innovation and how is it that competition can facilitate innovation, where a lot of those types of conversations were assumed away in consumer welfare standard that's been adopted. So then what happened in 2018 is that the law was amended and in very much big ways in some places. And the key driver of those amendments were really around how to support inclusion. But again, when you look at these amendments, they've done a little bit of work in terms of addressing exploitation of market power, but very little to address exclusion. And so if you want a dynamic economy, 
you know, you need to have a competition law that can speak to issues of exclusion. And this has not been the case. In terms of the issues that were highlighted in the paper, I think we take a case study of the petrochemical value chain. And here we have a company which is in the upstream. They are vertically integrated from mining of coal, from extraction of gas from our neighbor Mozambique, all the way to the production of intermediate chemical inputs for various industries. But what we found was that the company that was at the upstream, it was one company. It was a monopoly at certain stages, but quasi-monopoly at others. It was state-funded. The regulations of South Africa were literally changed to ensure that this company would be profitable. And when democracy came and these laws started to change, there wasn't that much attention applied to understanding what power does prior state support give that company going forward. And the issue that we've seen in the competition cases is that what that power does is that it's not power only in the market where the state would have supported previously, but power can be leveraged from one market to another. And because competition law looks at discrete levels of the market at any given point. So if you are looking at excessive pricing, you will be looking at the person who's supplying the product and the person that's buying the product, pretty much ignoring all the other contexts around this. And I mean, those that are well-versed in political economy studies and especially studies around power understand just how much value capture can be influenced by factors outside of the dyadic relationship between the customer and the supplier. So I think the main issue that we were trying to show in the paper was there, there are all these dynamics that are not captured. And this is not necessarily the problem if there are other policies that seek to address those problems. The issue in South Africa was that if you re look at all the early policy papers, the assumption was that you don't really need to worry that much about uh, some of the big industrial policy questions, as well as really understanding how to support international competitiveness of firms because if there are instances of market power, the competition law would address it. And if, you know, there's no local competition, then international players would be able to drive prices down and everything would be fair. Thank you very much, Pamela and Enten, for these detailed answers. Actually, they provide a direct link to our next questions about power. So, Enten, when I was reading your articles to prepare for this episode, I thought there was one aspect that linked very well to what we touched upon in our previous episode on hierarchies of labor. You explain in your work that multinational corporations, generally based in the global north, use a complex system of offshoring or subcontracting in the global south that allows them to extract high surpluses and make high profits. So this is perhaps slightly technical for listeners without background in economics or political economy, but the basic idea that you that you explain in your paper is that while wages are low in the global south productivity is actually quite high and it is this gap this wage between on the one hand low wages and on the other and the other hand relatively high productivity which allows corporations to extract more and more surplus by exploiting workers in the south in the global south so in technical terms this means that multinational corporations are playing with what you call global labor arbitrage I would like to ask you to explain to our listeners what you mean by this concept, this notion of global labor arbitrage. It is a bit technical, or it sounds a bit technical, but I think it is important to grasp the core of your argument. So the question is, what is this arbitrage and why is it such an important aspect? Yes, sure. Thank you. 
So global labor arbitrage was used in the business circle. And this is basically where multinationals, you know, they replace labor, usually in the global north, with the ones with lower wages now in the global south. And they see this as a form of survival tactic. So it's an urgent survival tactic. The idea is that they want to be able to have lower production cost. And, you know, the rationale is that so they can survive competition on the global level. But of course, there's more to that, right? Uh, Global labor arbitrage is actually a form of unequal exchange where multinationals get more labor for less and benefit from high markups on low-cost labor in the South. And this is where most of the so-called, you know, added value is mistakenly attributed to the innovative or financial activities in the global North. But actually, global labor arbitrage is a quest for polarization. It's a strategy for both reducing socially necessary labor costs and also to maximize the appropriation of surplus value. And of course, this is what we know as exploitation. Through this process, basically, global capital takes advantage of an imperfect global market. And what does it mean by imperfect global market is that while capital is relatively, they are able to move freely, labor is still confined within national borders, right? There may be some movement, but especially with low-wage labor, they are confined within national borders, with immigration policies, and so on. So capital takes advantage of this and then they apply flexible production where they, again, do you know, both foreign direct investment and arms length contracting in the global south. Through this process, through this global labor arbitrage, capital extracts more out of workers through various means. You know, when you do production in global south countries and of course you know we have to think about <laughs> the the power relations in the global economy how global south countries have been structurally adjusted right in relation to their debt pioneer and so on but uh, basically in general what's happening is that capital extracts more of the workers they can benefit or takes advantage of repressive work environments. And in the global south, uh, factories, they also take advantage of, you know, state-enforced bans on unionization, uh, quota systems, uh, or peace rate work, and so on. So this is how uh, drain happens uh, through this global labor arbitrage from the south to the north. Thank you, Intan, for this very detailed explanation of how labor arbitrage shapes the global economy. So switching gears again to another way of thinking about hierarchies in global value chains and power in particular, Pamela, you mentioned already how important it is to consider power in order to understand structural transformation in South Africa. You also have an excellent paper called Competition and Power in Global Value Chains, where you propose specific ways that we can conceptualize power in global value chains, where you draw on insights from competition economics specifically. 
Here you're particularly concerned with the ways in which bargaining power between firms shapes these patterns of value creation and capture along the chains, and especially the power of large lead firms. So can you explain how exactly you conceptualize this bargaining power and how it can shape our understanding of production and in particularly the cases you look at? So you already talked a little bit about petrochemicals, so maybe you could go more in detail on the other example that you bring up in the paper, which is that of supermarkets in South Africa. What we were trying to do with the paper that you refer to was So myself and the one co-author, Professor Simon Roberts, had been working, done a lot of work on market power and competition. And Stefano Ponte, who's the third co-author, had been working and actually had developed the kind of thinking on power in global value chains with two others, uh, Mark Dallas and uh, Tim Sturgeon. And in conversations with Stefano, it had become quite apparent, but also it's clear and you see it in the literature around how there are things that the way power in global value chains could learn from the developments in competition economics. And similarly, there are things that competition economics can learn from the developments in power in global value chains in terms of really understanding how power arises and how it can be leveraged in order to extract rents. So this particular paper, I mean, it's part of a series that we, this was the first paper and we haven't done the other two, but it's part of a series that we're wanting to do. This first one was really quite focused around delving deeply in the competition economics and seeing in part how looking at things a little bit more broadly from a global value chains perspective would benefit competition economics, particularly for analysis of, you know, these types of cases but also pointing out some things from competition that could be learned for global value chains analysis. So in terms of the work that we did and what we're trying to show, I'll just maybe tease out one example to kind of illustrate what is done in competition economics and the analysis of cases could be used to buttress the understanding of power in global value chains. And this is through the example of supermarkets. So what happens in supermarkets, and this happens in South Africa, I'm not sure to the extent to which it happens in other countries. The supermarkets, whenever there was a development of a shopping mall, so just for context, in South Africa, people love shopping at malls and shopping centers. So uh, high street shopping is not as popular. So if you are selling to end consumers, actually it is critical that you are present in supermarkets or shopping centers to be able to access consumers. What supermarkets would then do is when developers of these shopping centers or shopping centers would start a development, they would need an anchor tenant to make sure that you know the development would be profitable in the long run. And the most obvious one is, of course, supermarkets, because people will go to supermarkets all the time. They need to purchase all the goods that are sold by these supermarkets. And what the supermarkets would do is in the negotiations of those contracts, they would say that they want exclusive leases for a range of periods, um, some going as far as being evergreen, where that developer, if signs this particular supermarket as an anchor tenant, then is not allowed to sign uh, to have in that shopping center or a mall a butchery, a baker, or some other independent producer that sells goods that are also sold by that supermarket. Now, what that does is that it forecloses the opportunity 
of you know of sellers of those products to be able to access cons- uh, consumers and this is a big barrier to entry and expansion for markets and the theories of harm that you see in competition economics allows you to be unable to understand how power can be leveraged from one market to another and this is not something that we see in global value chains in global value chains particularly when the understanding of bargaining power is generally limited to you know the customer buyer relationship and not really looking at how can a relationship between maybe one part of the contract with a third party influence the relationship with the customer and buyer and so i think this is just an example of one of the learnings that we thought could be adopted in understanding bargaining power within the global value chains framework there are various other issues raised in the paper but i think i'll leave it there thank you pamela for your answers which really help us conceptualize power in value chains both within the national context as we just heard from you, but also, as we heard previously from Inton, from a more international level. Now we will move to questions related to policy. Inton, I would like to pick up on the issues of control on capital versus controls on labor. So with the rise of financialized or globalized capitalism, we have witnessed since the 80s, 1980s, a strong liberalization of the movement of capital across borders. However, the same cannot be said about labor, which is clearly not free to move across borders, And we only need to check any news portal on a daily basis to to get reminded of that. In your research, you show that it is precisely this combination of free moving capital and restrictions on labor movement and working conditions that allow such high profits along global value chains. So since this seems to be a structural feature of globalized capitalism, from a policy perspective, what kind of political change would be needed to address this problem, this sort of world imbalance between, on the one hand, free moving capital and on the other, restricted labor? That is a big question. <laughs> the challenging thing about this issue is that, you know, we're talking about this massive structure, right, of the world economy. And Maybe I should begin with saying something about my study when I studied suppliers, Indonesian suppliers, for example. What I found is that, you know, these suppliers really have low bargaining power. And what I found is that, you know, global capital can control a production, even though, you know, this is such a, a complex networks of production, but this multinationals can still control production to, uh, you know, the smallest detail. Now, the question is, how can you change this power dynamics, right? It's really not easy, of course. And the question is, can we change this through policies? Well, of course, one can say, you know, global South countries should have more power. They should be able to, you know, have policies that protect, you know, their own labor, their own industries, and they they should have a strong bargaining power against the imperialist countries, right? And along with their capital. What often happens is that, you know, global South countries they are also players, right, in this power dynamics in the sense that, of course, the elites, the ruling class in global South countries, they don't have the well-being of workers or their peasants in mind. So, for example, countries like Indonesia, what they have been doing 
with their neoliberal policies is that they keep creating regulations or laws which aim is to keep attracting foreign investments, right, in ways that cater to capital interests and not workers' interests, not the interests of the working class in general. So going back to the question, can we create policies that are good, that can uh, reverse (laughs) these damages that have happened for so long? I'm not sure. What I know is that any kind of changes have to start from the bottom. And, you know, that what has happened. I think the working class and a lot of global South countries have fought back, including in the pandemic. And you can see what happened in India with the peasants revolt recently. And also when the disastrous regulations were passed in Indonesia, there was a big movement against it. So, It has to, any kind of fundamental change has to be from the bottom. Thank you, Intan. Your answer really shows how challenging it is to achieve change globally, and especially in terms of identifying specific policies. So it's an important perspective that you bring in that structural and transformative change can maybe be best achieved if it comes from the bottom up, and that social movements therefore play a very important role. So coming up with specific policies and expecting policymakers to implement them, if it's not in their own interest, may not really be a very effective strategy. So I'd also like to kick this policy question over to you, Pamela, to hear more about the policy implications of your research. So for example, you're looking at South Africa and South Africa's competition law. So how would that need to change if we take your theoretical and empirical findings seriously and bring production back into competition, as you put it? So what would that look like and how do you think that could be achieved? Sure. I mean, I think it's important to recognize that there are changes that can be undertaken in order to bring into fruition the kind of issues that are raised in our research. And there are also examples of countries that have done it before. So I think the first thing is that there needs to be an inclusive opening up of the South African economy that confronts concentration because with a concentration, there is also linked a concentration of economic power, market power that then can drive outcomes more generally in the economy. And so in order to confront that conversation, what we need is to create competition that rewards creativity, innovation and sustains dynamism. So I think I mentioned earlier that South Africa is one of the countries where you see high profit levels, but low investment levels. Now, this suggests that there's a lot of, you know, non-productive rent extraction that may be happening in the economy. And that's not the kind of approach that's going to support the dynamism required for the country to be able to achieve uh, long-term growth. So this requires an understanding that competition law enforcement alone does not create competitors. And this is what has been the stance so far, is that whenever there are competition issues, don't worry, the competition authority will swoop in and be able to correct this. But actually, you know, the law itself may address certain issues, but it won't create competition or rivalry and dynamism that's required. And there's really an important role for industrial policy in supporting competition 
And this is what I think we lost during the uh, neoclassical time was the diminishing importance of industrial policy. So I think this is what that special issue was focused upon, which was how do we bring production back to the center of the gender of development? And I mean, you'll hear a number of people that will talk about, but what about the tensions between competition and industrial policy, right? Because industrial policy will support firms and sometimes it will support, you know, one firm, et cetera. And how does this affect competition? We must also just recall that there are good examples that we've seen in the past where this tension, if it exists, has been well managed. And here I'm referring to countries like Japan and South Korea, which is where the concept of optimal competition actually came from. The concept itself comes from a paper, I think a 1994 paper by, um, it's just escaped my mind, but she did kind of the work on understanding the development of the Asian tigers. And she was talking about how would you balance competition and industrial policy in order to support long-term growth. And what that really does is sometimes there are instances, and particularly in countries where you still need to do some really ground level development of capabilities, where the state should be very involved in supporting the development of firms. But you want to make sure that those firms that the state develop, right, because South Africa did this during the apartheid period as well, are then held to account in some way or another. And how that was done in those two countries is that there were clear reciprocal mechanisms where if a company or a firm was state funded, it had to meet certain targets. These targets were monitored. And over time, even where the competition law enforcement was muted in order to support the growth of that particular company, this was reviewed over time to ensure that is now the company at a level where it's international competitive. And it, if it is, then it no longer needs the support. It can be tracked back. Or if the state is going to continue to support, how do you make sure that the rents that are created from that state support filter down to other industries that may be getting inputs? So this is the value chain link from that company rather than keeping it still. And so the really the thinking around industrial policy strategies must embody long term investment in capabilities. Thank you very much, Pamela. This was very interesting. Intan, would you like to react to what was just said, perhaps? Yes, actually, what Pamela was saying reminds me uh, of something important. This is another challenge that I think I found also when studying this issue is that, you know, whatever in relation to policies, right? So whatever policies that are issued by, you know, a global South government, capital can't respond in ways that protect their own interest. Something simple, wage, right? A minimum wage. There was a big movement in Indonesia, for example, to increase minimum wage. And you would think that multinationals or global north capital, they would be worried about stuff like this. But when I talked to Indonesian suppliers, they told me that, no, they're customers, their multinational customers were not that worried. And why is that? Because they said, well, yeah, of course, wages come up, but hey, you know, you have to increase your productivity now. And then they would uh, find ways how to control labor in such a way that their productivity would increase. So there's so, so much creativity, right? Quote, unquote, creativity to go around policy. 
Thanks for the follow-up, Intan. This actually links very well to the final question we would like to ask you, which brings back the big picture or big development picture. Both of you are working within the boundaries of the study of production processes, value chains, but you also stress in your work, and very much so, the importance of historical aspects, for example, colonialism, or um, in the specific case of South Africa, apartheid, for example, as well as the importance of having in-depth knowledge of local contexts. So the final question we wanted to ask is, can you briefly explain how this attention to local or historical knowledge matters for the work that you do? And I also wanted to add a sub-question to it, because I teach a course here at King's on global value chains, and of course we read the work of both of you. So I also wanted to ask whether you have any advice for these students at King's and students across the world who want to study global value chains in terms of how to integrate theory with historical and contextual insights based on your own experience. So basically, how does historical and contextual knowledge matter for your work and what can students learn from that? Okay, so thank you for the wonderful question. It is very important for people who want to understand the way our world economy works today to also understand how we got here. You know, the history of colonialism and imperialism is so central to this issue that we really cannot ignore it. I mean, first of all, I mean, generally what colonialism and imperialism did to global South countries for centuries and centuries, the plunder, you know, that made Europe and, you know, United States rich and powerful. How can you ignore that? And also, you know, the more uh, contemporary history of neoliberalism, the imposition of neoliberalism and what we call, you know, neocolonialism or new imperialism, that's also important. Let's take an example of Indonesia. I mean, Indonesia experienced uh, hundreds of years of colonialism, including by the Dutch, and also what happened in the 60s, right, in the mid-60s with genocides of communists and intellectuals who are on the left. This history, this bloody history, it's what got us here as well. You know, this is how countries like the United States and the United Kingdom basically destroyed a country so they could rebuilt it in accordance to their own interest. And again, it required them to orchestrate a genocide, basically. This is the foundation of the world that we know now. And not understanding this history is a big mistake. So thank you for asking that question again. So for students uh, who, who are interested in this issue, I would say, you know, read a lot of perspectives and always be open for a critical evaluation of, you know, current theories or current claims about global value chains, about global production, and always look behind the mainstream perspectives, I would say. Thank you, Intan. Pamela, would you like to jump in? Sure. I mean, I think Intan has given quite a, a good answer. Just to add to that, I think more recent developments in economics have been emphasizing just how much reality doesn't 
fit, you know, quite as nicely in the textbook models that we were often taught in undergraduate studies. And so I think to be able to understand the, you know, the why a country or a particular policy has been adopted, but you're not seeing the expected outcomes. Once you start asking yourself that question, the context becomes critical. And just to give an example, I mean, in the 1990s and the 2000s, South Africa did exactly what the textbook tells you you should do to be able to develop, right? And we did see some growth, but it was short-term and it was not, uh, not sustained growth. And so to understand then why it is that after having adopted what were, were the dominant policy paradigms at the time that South Africa didn't succeed, you have to delve into the political economy dynamics. You need to understand the distribution of power in the economy. And you can't begin to do that without really grappling with the proper context of a country. I mean, as an example, something that we talk about in the Oxford University Press book on structural transformation in South Africa is that a lot of the economic power, which we define as the power to accumulate, is linked to the structure of the economy, right? And when you look at the structure of the South African economy, when we did the data work for the book, the structure in 2019 didn't look that different from the structure in 1994. And so then how do you expect that you would change the distribution of income and wealth in any significant way if you have not done much to change that structure of the economy? So the moment you start delving into deep questions of trying to properly understand what are the factors that have driven outcomes, the context, I think, becomes critical. One obvious thing that comes up once you delve into political economy studies is that as much as political power is important and uh, an important determining factor for policy outcomes, we must consider it in terms of how it interacts with other forms of power in the economy. And these forms of power do not only reside in formal structures or institutions, but also in informal structures. Those of you that would be familiar with South Africa, you'd know that we've just had a big uh, period around uh, state capture, where effectively one family was coordinating a lot of government decisions. And this family sits outside of government. So understanding how they were influencing decision makers. And if you look at the reports around that, it brings in the decisions that were taken by consulting firms, the role they played in facilitating the state capture and looting that was happening. So I think it is absolutely critical that you look at context or maybe uh, in economics would mostly refer to it as the political e economy dynamics when you're trying to understand policy. In terms of your second point, I think the most important thing is to read and to read widely, not only to read the work in your particular profession. So I'm an economist by background, but I must tell you the most interesting conversations I've had about power have been with sociologists and that played a big role in developing some of the thinking that has gone into the work that we did on power and competition in global value chains, as well as some of the other work that I was doing. So it is delving into theories in sociology that 
helps you understand indirect power and how it can be leveraged. And then linking that with economic theories or the understanding of power in terms of economics has really, I think, yielded some important insights that I wouldn't have otherwise come to had I not had the engagement with some of the sociology literature. So interdisciplinary, you know, bring in a subject from another field. I think it can only grow you. Thank you both so much. So this brings our episode to an end. Uh, Basil and I have learned a lot today and I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, we hope those of you listening enjoyed the podcast as well. If you did, please do share the link with your friends, colleagues and family and do get back to us if you'd like to give us some feedback. Mm-hmm.